Hi, everyone. Welcome to our session on Designing for Inclusion and Financial Wellness. My name is Nancy Kwan, Head of Financial Wellness here at Fidelity. With me today are Katie Riley, Director of Thought Leadership, and Sarah Raposo, Director of Behavioral Research. In this session, we'll unpack what we've learned about financial wellness over the last couple of years. We'll talk about why reimagining financial wellness is more important than ever, what that looks like for employees, and the levers that employers and financial firms can pull to achieve this new transformative vision that helps all employees on their journey to financial wellness. Now, let's start with the elephant in the virtual room. The great reshuffle, the great resignation, the she session, however you want to refer to it, we know it is likely top of mind for just about everyone. We've all read the headlines about why so many employees are changing jobs. Among the reasons for this great reshuffle is that employees are looking for an employer whose values align with their own and for workplace cultures where they and all people belong. New research out of MIT Sloan underscores how critical this notion of inclusion is. In this study, they find that having a toxic culture is a top driver of attrition. And in fact, that toxicity is 10 times more impactful than compensation. Let's let that sink in for a second. Toxicity is 10 times more impactful than compensation. Now, you might consider a toxic workplace as one that is abusive or unethical, and those are certainly true. But another primary hallmark of a toxic culture is that they lack inclusion. So think for the LGBTQ community, employees with disabilities, racial, age, gender inequalities, or even just a general sense of, non, of a non-inclusive culture can feel uncomfortable and toxic over time. Now, you might be wondering, what does that have to do with financial wellness and financial benefits? Well, our research shows that if we just started with a simple definition of a financial wellness program, organizations that have a less inclusive view of financial wellness are struggling to attract new talent. We measured how a thousand global multinationals think about what it means for employees to be financially well. Those who had the broadest, most inclusive definitions, those that included things like saving for retirement, paying for health care, paying down debt, those companies reported attraction rates 13 percentage points higher than those with the narrowest of definitions. So what does that mean? That means the help we provide employees is directly tied to the sentiment of inclusion and why it's critically important that we build financial wellness programs with this in mind. You know, until very recently, financial wellness programs have operated on a common one-size-fits-all framework that was created based on the needs and goals of the cultural majority. But when it comes to employees' household finances, the landscape is varied. It is not a level playing field to begin with. Black Americans have more student debt than their white peers. Women have saved less for retirement than men, despite the fact that on average they live longer lives. And the LGBTQ community and their needs are often left out of the conversation altogether. And that's just to name a few examples. We know from our research that when employees are not doing well with their finances, their health and their work wellness suffers too. Some of these disparities are due to long-standing systemic issues that have prevented equal access to the very experiences that set people and their families up for success. For example, affordable housing, healthcare, education. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook. 
That's why we're on a mission to reimagine financial wellness through a new inclusive lens. Here at Fidelity, we know we play a key role in building the tools, the experiences, and the engagement that your employees use for their financial wellness journey. And we know the work is just starting and we've got a lot to do. We are committed to designing programs that better reflect all cultural groups and identities and sharing with you what we're learning along the way. And we'll run through these together through the rest of the session today. We'll get you grounded in this new inclusive mindset, share some useful frameworks to use in your organizations, and of course, showcase the work Fidelity is doing to help. So this first framework I wanted to share, we developed to better engage employees in a more inclusive way. This has guided our offerings and research, and we'll use it to guide our discussion today. It's built around taking an employee-centered perspective. So this first step at the top, welcome me. This means having an open mind, valuing and reflecting an array of employee experiences. The second step is know me. Get curious with employees, ask questions, and listen with purpose of connecting and understanding the variety of goals and that they have and the challenges they face, keeping in mind that these may be different for different identity groups. And the third step is help me. Help them find the right solutions to address their unique needs. By doing these things, we can offer better solutions and experiences with all of your employees in mind. Next, I'll turn it over to Katie, who will address the NOMI layer and how understanding employees' cultures, identities, and experiences can give us better insight into their financial situations. I'll take it away, Katie. Thank you, Nancy. So before we dive into this next part of the conversation, I want to ground us in a few definitions. I will be talking a lot about culture, identity, and experiences, and how these aspects of someone's life influence their financial priorities and their decision-making. So I want to be sure we're grounded around the same definitions. So first, we have culture. People are a product of our culture. Our cultures shape who we are, and as a result, they shape what we value, what we do, what we believe. And some cultures were born into, so this would be like your race or your ethnicity, your generation, possibly even a religion. And others you become a part of as you grow older and you lean into your interests. So think of these like work culture and neighborhood culture, maybe the culture of a sports team that you follow. These are very community focused and we're a part of many different cultures throughout our lives. And then we have identity. Identity is directly shaped by our culture but our identities are how we see and how we define ourselves. And just like culture, there are many aspects to one's identity, but the identity really centers around an individual. And then we have experiences. So experiences are events that we go through in our lives that have the power to influence or change how we make our decisions. They can be a collective experience, like a nation that's going through a war together, or it could be an individual experience like losing a job. But either way, these experiences occur across all cultures and all identities. So two people with very different backgrounds can find themselves having the same type of experience. And because our cultures and our identity and experiences shape who we are and shape what we value and the decisions that we make, it's probably not a surprise that all of our financial priorities reflect that as well. The biggest problem with that traditional kind of one-size-fits-all approach to financial wellness that Nancy had mentioned is that it assumes that all people have the same set of circumstances for the same reasons 
and that they need a similar solution to be set up for long-term success. But we know that that is not the case and that there is a lot of variability. And so I wanna illustrate this variability with a visual. First, let's look at the relationship between household income and financial wellness scores as an example. So you may know we have a way to measure financial wellness and it covers everything from day-to-day -day expenses to your debt obligations, your long-term savings, and even beyond that. And it results in a score from zero to 100, where zero is the worst and 100 is the best. So this is just illustrative data, but in general, employees that have higher household incomes pretty reliably have better financial wellness scores. But you'll notice on this chart, there's a lot of variability here. So if we group folks into individual or group individuals and folks rather into low, medium, and high household income brackets, just knowing what group someone belongs to is an imperfect indicator of what their financial wellness looks like. So you'll notice within these dotted bars that some employees with low income are very financially well, and that others with high income have low financial wellness. And I want to double click on these and understand why folks may find themselves in that situation. So first, let's look at these orange dots and let's consider some examples of folks who have lower household income, but are scoring significantly higher than their peers in terms of financial wellness. So first, we've got a young couple. They are newly married and they both came from households where they grew up learning the value and the importance of saving and being prepared for financial emergencies. And they are just starting out in their careers. So they've got lower household income than some other families, but they've actually built up a really nice nest egg with their personal savings and their wedding gifts. And they also have really terrific familial support and community support for when short-term needs arise. But in this bucket, we also have an older employee who has had a very successful career. She's built up a pretty sizable retirement account over her working wife. But like so many others during the pandemic, she decided that she wanted to take a step back from a high pressure work environment and spend time doing things that really mattered to her, like spending more time with her young grandchildren. So she decided to take a step back into a part-time role. It came with a pay cut, but her expenses right now in her life are minimal and she has a great financial plan in place. So in both of these cases, folks are feeling really confident about the decisions that they've made and how they've set themselves up for financial security. Aware of this one-size-fits-all approach really gets tested is in our next set of examples. So we're going to be looking at folks who find themselves with high income and lower financial wellness scores. And if we're just making assumptions, we might assume that they're making possibly some irrational decisions with their income. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we learn that what may seem irrational is actually very rational, just based on their unique sets of circumstances. So let's take a look. We have a second generation immigrant family. They're part of the sandwich generation. So they are primary caretakers for their aging parents as well as their young children. And they're also part of a multi-generational household, which in itself comes with pretty complex financial needs. They're also saving for their children's education. They're saving for their daughter's quinceanera, her 15th birthday party, which is a major celebration in their culture. And it comes with an average price tag of about $10,000. And providing for their family, both inside and outside their home, is a major priority for this Latinx immigrant community. And so they are regularly sending remittances back to their family members in Guatemala, 
They're tithing each week to their church. And they're also making regular donations to community members who may find themselves in need. So you see, they've got a lot of competing financial needs, but the decisions that they're making with their income are really based on their values and their priorities. And then we also have a set of LGBTQ parents, and they just recently made their dream a reality and had some children. But family planning for this couple came with a pretty major price tag. It was upward of $100,000 for each child to cover the cost of surrogacy and medical and legal expenses. And between family planning costs and their student loan payments, which monthly total more than $1,600, this has taken a pretty major toll on their ability to save for the long term. But they've still got more than 30 years until they retire. So they're feeling very focused once they've chipped away at some of this debt that they can really spend time saving for the long term. So in each of these cases, they may not be following our prescribed financial wellness guidelines, but these folks are making choices that are directly in line with their priorities, which have been shaped by their cultures, their identities, and their experiences. So in this context, the decisions that they're making are actually very rational. However, that doesn't mean that they don't still need help. We know that saving for emergencies and for retirement are still top two priorities across all demographic groups. It's just that right now, sometimes they have to take a backseat to the current day-to-day -day needs and other priority. So these examples of how someone's culture and identity shape their experiences and their needs and decisions directly challenge our historic prescriptions of what it means to be financially well. And it reinforces that we have to broaden the types of support that we're offering to our workforces if we want to help them achieve all of their diverse and multifaceted goals and still look ahead. And that means we have an opportunity to reevaluate how we are supporting employees, to approach it from a much more holistic perspective that actually meets employees where they are, to provide a broad array of support for their broad array of priorities and to help them set up for long-term success. So how can we do that? I'm gonna turn it over to Sarah to address the help me layer of our inclusive engagement lens. Thank you, Katie. Um, so like Katie said, we're gonna pivot from the ways that culture, identity, and experiences shape employees' values and their current financial behaviors to talking about how we can collectively support employees to get from where they are now to where they want to be. So what I'll do is share some of our research insights with you, and then Nancy, Katie, and I will have a discussion about how we've been putting some of these insights into action and what employers could do. So I'm going to start with the pop quiz. Um, so I just want you to answer this question in your head. I want you to give me your gut reaction. And the question is, which of these matters more for making good financial decisions? Is it being knowledgeable? Is it believing in yourself? Do you think that both are pretty important or not neither one of these really matters all that much? So make your choice to keep it in mind. Um, and then we're gonna get back to this poll in just a, a couple of minutes. But I wanna start by talking about financial education. So if we think about some of the barriers and the catalysts that employees experience on their financial wellness journey, um, it's pretty clear that the industry is largely focused on financial education. We see this everywhere. And so this might lead a reasonable person to believe that 
a lack of knowledge or a lack of education is really the primary reason for some of the disparities that we see in employees' financial behaviors and in employees being able to achieve their goal. And if financial education really was the solution to uh, these problems, then we would expect that people who know the same things would behave similarly. But that's actually not what we find. So I'm going to give you just one example from our research to illustrate this. Um, in one of our recent surveys, we measured employees' employees' level of financial knowledge, and we'll often use FINRA's gold standard, their financial capability quiz. And we looked at gender differences in saving behaviors. And so we find that women with low levels of financial knowledge tend to save a smaller proportion of their income compared to women with high levels of financial knowledge. Now that makes sense. That's what we, do, we would expect. But we find that men with low levels of financial knowledge, those who answer these capability questions incorrectly, they're actually outsaving women with high financial knowledge who are answering the questions correctly. So because this is sort of falling apart at the seams, not exactly what we'd expect, it gave us some clues that there might be something more going on when it comes to what factors go into the financial decisions that employees make. So we wondered what are some of those other tangible factors that influence employees making the kinds of financial decisions that set them up for success. And to do this, we traveled across the country. We held focus groups with hundreds of employees. We surveyed thousands of employees, including our own ERG members. And we also turned to the scientific literature on decision-making. And through this research, we developed Fidelity's Inclusive Drivers of Financial Wellness Framework. This framework is based in science. It's actionable because we focused only on levers or drivers that employers or workplace retirement plan providers have the ability to influence in some way. And this framework is inclusive. It's inclusive because we incorporated what we heard through those focus group conversations about what employees have experienced along their financial wellness journeys, things that we often miss. And it's inclusive because we took the drivers that we identified and we actually tested them across gender groups, age groups, income levels, and race and ethnicity to make sure that the ones that we identified were resonating. They were holding true across all groups, and we weren't just making the mistake of identifying ones that only resonate for a majority. So altogether, we identified 12 key drivers of employee financial wellness. And the two that were most impactful by far are being financially confident and being financially knowledgeable. So if we think back to the pop quiz um, earlier, the answer is C. Both are actually um, just about as important as each other for making good financial decisions. And the thing is that financial confidence and knowledge, they're actually gatekeepers to employee financial wellness. And what I mean by this is that for the other 10 drivers that we identified that I'll show you in a second, they all influence employees' financial wellness either by boosting confidence or by supporting employees' uh, financial knowledge base. Um, so the other 10 drivers that we identified, I'll just highlight some of them here. Um, one of them is that employees feel motivated to save for the long-term future. We also identified some drivers that have to do with employees' relationship with their employer. 
These include whether they believe that their workplace benefits are meeting their needs and whether they just feel supported by their employer. We also identified some drivers that are related to employees' relationship with their workplace retirement plan provider. So that includes whether they trust their firm, believe their firm is inclusive, and if the firm provides support that really meets them where they are. And so what we find is that employees who have lower levels of financial wellness, who um, save less for retirement, have more debt, have less in a rainy day fund, they tend to score lower across all 12 of the drivers that we identified, whereas employees with better financial wellness score higher on all of these drivers. And that's true across all the identity groups that we tested. So I don't have time to go through all 12 of those, obviously, but I do want to leave you with three key findings that I'm going to spend a little bit of time walking through. The first is that financial confidence is what motivates people to actually apply what they know. The second is that leveraging inclusive employee-centered benefits can be one way to build confidence. And the final one is that employees' trust in their financial firm matters above their um, offerings. So let's start with financial confidence. Financial literacy or knowledge, which is what I started with, that's one piece of the good financial decision-making equation. In general, we do find that people who are more knowledgeable about their finances fare better because they have the right information to make good financial decisions. But as I illustrated earlier, the other piece that's largely been missing from the conversation is a focus on financial confidence. So by financial confidence, what I mean is having a can-do attitude or believing in your abilities to make good financial decisions. And this belief in your abilities, this is, um, psychologists have a word for this. We call it self-efficacy. And I know it might seem a little fluffy. We're talking about just believing in yourself, right? Um, but this actually has real consequences for employees' financial decisions and the outcomes that they face. Um, so I'll, I'll walk you through an example from our research. In this study, we surveyed nearly 4,000 um, employees who participate in their retirement plan, uh, workplace retirement plan. And we measured their level of confidence and their level of knowledge. And we asked them to report on a few different behaviors. So the three I'm showing here are the average number of debt obligations, the percent of employees with at least four months of emergency savings, and their average total deferral rate. And these colored bars refer to different groups of employees based on their level of confidence and knowledge. So the lightest bars on the left-hand side are employees who lack both confidence and knowledge. The next bar is employees who lack confidence, but they're knowledgeable. The third bar is employees who are confident, but they lack the knowledge to back that up. And then the darkest bar is employees who are both confident and knowledgeable. And as you can see across these three behaviors, employees who fare best are the ones who have that combo, who are both confident and knowledgeable. They have the fewest number of debts. 80% of them have at least four months locked away for an emergency, and they have the highest average total deferral rate. So why is being confident and knowledgeable such a power combo? Well, the reason is that confidence is what motivates people to engage and to use what they know. We can probably think of some people in our lives who fall into the bucket of being confident but lacking knowledge. And so these are people we tend to call overconfident. Um, they tend to be a little bit misguided and sometimes make the wrong decisions because they don't have that knowledge to back it up. On the other hand, 
we can probably also think of people in our lives who are really knowledgeable but lack the confidence. And so even if they know the right things to do, they might not do them. Uh, They might just opt out entirely. And so thinking back to the gender differences that I was talking about earlier, what it seems like is that it's not that women know less about finances than men, not anymore anyway. Um, But what seems to be happening is that women often second guess their choices, maybe because they're worried about making the wrong decision or because they need to feel more sure in their decision before they act on it. But either way, this is um, seems to be a link to women opting out, not necessarily making a choice, not going for it, even though they might know what to do. So if we don't address this need for employees to feel empowered to take control of their finances, then all of this financial education only goes so far. So how do we actually boost confidence for those employees who need that boost? We know that some groups of employees struggle more with their confidence than others, whether this is due to just a lack of experience with making financial decisions, whether it's because they're navigating really complex uh, financial decisions that would be hard for anyone to navigate, or maybe it's because of stereotypes related to their gender or to their race. Um, Either way, Unlike knowledge, which can be taught through financial education, it can be taught directly, financial confidence is something that we say is earned, not learned. You can't just crack a book and learn how to be financially confident. But luckily, science does show that there are some interventions that have the potential for success. So I'm going to touch on a few of those. One of them is by having employees connect to their most important values. So what research shows is that when people spend a few minutes um, really uh, focusing on thinking about and focusing on what their most important values are to them. So this could be family, it could be your health, um, it could be your pets, uh, it could be spirituality, whatever that is. When people reflect on that, it puts them, um, it induces certain positive emotions and puts people in a state where they're open to new information and they let their guard down. And so this can be really useful in cases where people are sort of threatened by financial decision. So this is something that might work in the short term. A more longer term solution is to help employees develop a growth mindset about their abilities to make financial decisions. The growth mindset is a term coined by Carol Dweck at Stanford. She's done a lot of research on this topic. And what she finds is that people who believe that their abilities are malleable, they can grow over time, they're more likely to approach challenges rather than back away. So in the case of finance, we often hear, oh, I'm not a math person or I am a math person. And so if we can help people who believe that they're just not a math person to understand that actually their ability to to do math or to make financial decisions is something that they can learn and grow over time, then they're more likely to be willing to lean in and learn um, instead of backing away from, from what might seem like a challenge. So that takes a little more time to develop. Um, And then a third thing that we can do is help employees gain experience um, making decisions. It turns out that one way to build confidence is actually just by ripping the Band-Aid off and starting to make, uh, you know, some low stakes decisions 
so that you can build on that success over time. And a great way to do this in the workplace is through benefits. So we know that there's a really clear connection between inclusive employee-centered benefits and confident and financially well employees. When we can think about inclusive benefits in a few different ways, I'm going to focus on the offering as a whole and um, the kinds of benefits that are being offered. So one way that we can assess whether a benefits offering is inclusive is to find out whether employees say that their needs are being met. So in some research recently, um, we've looked for what identity groups of employees are getting their needs met and what identity groups are less likely to get their needs met to help us understand whether there is a gap and what that gap really looks like so we can try to get underneath it and address it. And we do find that there are some groups of employees who are less likely to say their needs are being met through their benefits. Specifically, we find that younger employees under the age of 35 um, especially young Latinx employees are more likely to say that their needs are not being met through their workplace benefits. LGBTQ employees, especially those who identify as trans or non-binary, are much more likely than their peers to say their needs are being met, as are Asian and multiracial employees. So in some cases, we find that these groups of employees actually have access to fewer benefits on average compared to their peers. This is especially true for younger employees and transgender employees. And so this is, you know, this piece of information can help us to understand why their needs are being met. They just don't have access to as many benefits on the whole um, compared to their peers. In other cases, there isn't necessarily an overall access gap in the number of benefits that are available to them, but it's that the benefits that some employees have access to may not be addressing that broad spectrum of life events that employees are experiencing. And so if you think back to um, some of the life events and examples that Katie shared, things like uh, adoption of fertility support or needing help saving for a family celebration or paying down student debt, um, these are things that aren't always necessarily covered by benefits. And so organizations can reflect on how well their benefits align to their employees' life goals and experiences. And they might be able to address that by offering an array of benefits so that everyone is covered and sort of has what they need, they need, um, or by offering benefits that are flexible. So when it comes to specific benefits that can be offered, how can organizations set themselves apart? Well, we firmly believe that it's important to offer benefits that employees really, really value um, based on science. So we do have some science to back this up. So I'm going to focus on benefits that drive employee financial wellness. I'll give you some ways to think about this, but I also want to point out that we have some new thought leadership on leveraging benefits to attract and retain talent. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that, or you can reach out to your MP. So when it comes to um, the VOI or the value on investment of benefits, what we find is actually that the most utilized benefits are not necessarily the ones that are the most valued. And utilization is a really common way of thinking about whether a benefit is worth it, but we have some evidence to suggest that there might be other things to look at. We also find that retirement plans and healthcare plans, while these are important, they're fundamental, they've become table stakes. They're not differentiators anymore. So let me tell you a bit about how organizations can set themselves apart. 
One way to think about value is offering benefits that drive desirable outcomes. And so we find that there are certain benefits when they're offered that predict better employee financial wellness. These include online financial decision support. It includes offering an employer contribution to health savings account, uh, health savings account and to workplace retirement plan. Also includes telemedicine. So that's one way to think about value. Another way to think about value is by offering benefits that directly address certain financial disparities. So in the example of Black employees with student debt, making student debt repayment benefits available, whether refinancing or employer contributions, um, that can be one way to to directly address that need. A third way to think about value is by offering benefits that employees tell us they love, the ones that they say matters. And we can identify ones um, that are true, ring true across the workforce. And then we can also identify these hidden gem benefits that are highly valued by certain pockets of the workforce. Um, And any organization can go out and do this and find what's best for their workforce. We also have some evidence about what those are. So you can check out the thought leadership piece. The final set of drivers that I'll talk about are related to workplace retirement plan providers and the role that we play in all of this. And I mentioned that, you know, it goes beyond products and offerings but really to the relationship. So we find that employees who fare best financially, they trust their workplace retirement plan provider. They feel that their provider is inclusive. So meaning that their provider supports their community, really aligns with their values, and that the representatives that they work with can relate to them. These employees also believe that their retirement plan provider meets them where they are now. So they don't belittle them. They don't make assumptions about where they are, where they're trying to be, or why they're doing what they're doing. But they really try to ask questions and understand. And they really get the role that family and culture play in their financial decision. At the end of the day, we know employees just want to feel understood. And when we ask employees what it is that they look for in a financial advisor, we've asked you know, is it important that they look like you, that they think like you, or that they understand you? Understanding was out by far. We find that over 80% of employees say that that's what they're looking for. And so organizations can set themselves apart by choosing a provider that can support their employees through that empathy and understanding. So now that we've covered some of the key drivers of employee financial wellness, I'm going to turn it back to Nancy and Katie so that we can talk about how we're putting some of these insights into practice and what employers can do. Um, So Nancy, I'm going to turn it over to you first. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what Fidelity is doing based on some of these insights to create a more inclusive financial wellness offer? Sure, Sarah. Uh, You know, I'm really excited to share uh, just like two pieces of great work that our team's been working on on this front. So the first one's related to workshops. Uh, The team's created community insight modules focused on specific identity groups. Uh, These are designed to complement existing workshops and engage diverse communities by highlighting the cultural and community-specific factors that impact their financial wellness. So I think some, some folks may have seen these already, but Um, Examples are the next generation of workers, LGBTQ, Black, Latino women, and then coming in Q2, 
Later in Q2, we've got the Asian American and Pacific Islanders, veterans and caregivers. And we know that this is just the start of the conversation. So we're excited to share those. Um, the second one that I wanted to highlight is the financial wellness checkup. Uh, you know, we often feel like this checkup is this, frankly, the starting point for financial wellness because you need to kind of know where your situation is before you kind of get going on the journey which is why we are like so incredibly thrilled to introduce the checkup in Spanish in our Net Benefits mobile app. And, you know, frankly, all of these are really just starting points. We work very closely with our customer inclusion teams to ensure that we are connected and aligned. We work, of course, closely with Katie and Sarah's team to ensure that the, the things we're building are aligned with the needs at, across these various identity groups and just really wanting to make sure that inclusion is just in financial wellness is just like part of our DNA. So those are just some examples of, of some of the things we're working on. Uh, since I have the unmute button off, um, maybe turn it to Katie and ask, ask you a question, Katie. So what's one thing employers can do to either start, continue, or accelerate for a more inclusive financial wellness program or offering for their employees? I'd say this is a one thing, two part kind of answer. And so first I would say it's about evaluating your workforce and understanding who is working for you and what their unique needs are. Um, so you could do a financial wellness assessment of your workforce and look at how different identity groups are faring. You can check in with your ERGs and get some kind of cultural conversation going around where needs may not be met. Um, but also, I think it's important to look at your identity groups within your organization that are doing really well and understand where there are some learnings that you can share back with other uh, members of your workforce so we can really highlight those, those great aspects where people are doing really well and share that knowledge. But then the second part to this, after you know who works for you, is understanding where there are gaps in your benefits um, that you may be able to help bridge. Uh, by reevaluating and reassessing the types of benefits you're offering and making sure that they are really in line with the priorities and the needs of your workforce. So two-sided answer there. There's a, a, an assessment aspect as well as an action aspect, uh, but both of them are equally important in my opinion. And Sarah, just speaking of benefits, um, you mentioned that there are some of those standout benefits that really resonate with certain demographic groups. I would love if you could just share a little bit of those insights with us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are a lot of different examples that I could share. So I'll try to, uh, to really pare it down. Um, so we find that there are certain benefits that are really highly valued by particular um, race or ethnic groups. So for example, we know that paid time off vacation leave is actually one of the top value benefits across the board, but it is particularly valued for employee uh, for, uh, for Black employees. Um, so that is definitely a standout. Black employees also um, tend to value life insurance benefits more than their peers. So two to watch out for there. We find that Asian employees are more likely to value um, elder care benefits compared to their peers. So in terms of addressing that need uh, where, where Asian employees are less likely to say their needs are being met, that, that's one avenue um, to pursue. There's also um, benefits that are more valued based on the light, um, the light stage that employees find themselves in. So some examples are that younger employees who might be working to start a family, their most valued benefit overall, even above paid leave, is actually paid maternity and paid parental leave. 
Um, so that's a big one. They also are more likely to value daycare benefits and childcare benefits compared to their older peers, um, not too surprisingly. Uh, and then the last example that I'll leave you with is that we find that employees who identify with the LGBTQ community are more likely to value uh, adoption um, support as a benefit. So again, just sort of thinking about what about different pockets of employees and what their needs are, what they might be looking for as a way to align benefits. Um, and I will say that we know that when employees' needs are being met, there is a clear advantage. Employers and employees alike, they win. Basically, it's a win-win. So when employees say that their needs are being met through their benefits, they're almost twice as likely to have financial wellness scores that we uh, categorize as healthy. They're also three times as likely to trust their employer compared to employees who say that their needs are being met. So, you know, this is a way to think about your benefits. It can definitely be a way to build goodwill with employees, which is really critical um, as we're all, you know, struggling to attract and retain talent. That's terrific. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Katie. So um, why don't we wrap up our session again? Just we hope you enjoyed our session. Uh, we hope we provoked some new thinking and perhaps you learned a couple of new things along the way. We did want to leave you with a few key takeaways as we wrap this up. So, you know, inclusion, of course, is a significant part of our ability to attract and retain talent and inclusion and financial wellness can play a particularly pivotal role. Uh, as, as Katie mentioned, you know, an individual's culture, identity and experiences shape their needs and decisions. So we need to think differently and more broadly about how we help. And then Sarah's you know, drivers of financial wellness, all 12 of them, but the three big ideas coming out of that to take away, you know, confidence and knowledge equals better outcomes, inclusive benefits are a big differentiator. And, you know, frankly, like, don't underestimate the value of trusting financial firms as a key part of driving retention and inclusiveness. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, there's, you know, really terrific materials and resources. Please reach out to your MDs. There's new thought leadership coming out on the great reshuffle and the role of benefits. So certainly reach out to them for more. And we hope you take advantage of some of the other recorded sessions that are out there. But again, just a huge thank you for spending some time with us today to discuss inclusive financial wellness. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the Benefits That Benefit podcast by Fidelity. We hope you learned a lot from this episode. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. We'd also love to hear from you, so leave a rating and a review to let us know what you think. Lastly, if you'd like to read more about our research and insights on what we now call the Great Recalibration, head to our website at go.fidelity.com forward slash recalibration. Thanks again for listening and see you on our next episode. Plan sponsor use only. Information provided in the podcast is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as investment or tax advice. Views and opinions of the individuals noted are expressed as of the date of the recording and do not necessarily represent the views of Fidelity Investments. Any such views are subject to change at any time based on market or other conditions. Fidelity Investments disclaims any liability for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information in this podcast. Consult your tax or financial advisor for information concerning your specific situation. 
This podcast is intended for U.S. persons only and is not a solicitation for any Fidelity product or service. This podcast is provided for your personal, non-commercial use and is the copyrighted work of FMR LLC. You may not reproduce this podcast in whole or in part in any form without the permission of FMR LLC. The trademarks and service marks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. Keep in mind that investing involves risk. The value of your investment will fluctuate over time and you may gain or lose money. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, 900 Salem Street, Smithfield, Rhode Island, 02917. Copyright 2022, FMR, LLC. All rights reserved.